Well, I hope some of you at least took me up on my challenge this week. Uh, if you didn't see that on Facebook, I put up a note this week that said, um, if you want to get the most out of the sermon this week, you should read the entire book of Galatians from front to back. And uh, I actually did this a few times, actually, three or four times, and it amazed me how much it brought things together. And so, of course, I added the hashtag mind blown, you know, because that's what you do. Um, if you have never tried reading Paul's letters straight through, I highly recommend it. It's a totally different perspective on the scriptures than just a couple verses at a time. I was actually tempted to just read you uh, Eugene Peterson's message translation of the book of Galatians this morning and then just close with a song. But, you know, you pay me for more than that. So the churches in Galatia were actually founded due to a unfortunate or maybe more a fortunate mishap. Paul was traveling and he got very sick, and so he ended up staying in Galatia until he got better. Now, this wasn't any normal sickness. This was a pretty intense sickness, and so Paul actually says in the book of Galatians that it was a trial to the Galatians, not just to him, but to the Galatians. But instead of dumping him outside the city, the Galatians treated Paul like Jesus himself had come into their midst. And so being Paul, he couldn't let it go and founds a bunch of churches. Now, years later, he gets an email from the Galatians. Uh, It seems that after he left, a number of false teachers had wormed their way into the Galatian church. Now, the Galatians were Gentiles, which means that they were not Jewish. And so these false teachers came in, and they had somehow convinced the Galatians that they needed to become Jewish before they became Christian, which meant they had to become circumcised, which is a very Jewish practice, which if you don't know what that means, you can ask Diane when she comes back from her vacation. (laughs) Suffice it to say, it was later decreed in the Jerusalem Council, if you read in Acts chapter 15, um, that it's not necessary to become Jewish, many of you probably are grateful for that, um, to become a follower of Jesus. And so there's also a bunch of other divisions in the book of Galatians 2 that you can see as you read through. Factions had cropped up. And when the Galatians realized that they were finally in trouble, they sent a letter to Paul asking him what, he sh- what they should do. Now many of you know that I have been away for the last two weeks, And my wife and I have four kids, so I'm not going to say that we were on vacation. I'm going to say we were on a trip. Um, And while it was super dry here when we left, apparently the weather decided to wait till we were in Indiana before it just dumped rain on everybody here. So um, I came home to my lawn looking, shall we say, wild. Um, So I got to mowing on Monday, and I got about two-thirds of the way through my lawn when all of a sudden my mower dies. And uh, I did all the things that I know how to do to get a mower to work. You know, I put more gas in it because it looked like it needed some more. I pushed that little squishy red button on the front. I I kicked it a few times. Um, I apologized to it for kicking it a few times. I wept and I gnashed my teeth at it. I may or not have sworn at it. I won't tell. Would not start. So I did everything that I should do. And then what everyone should do in that case, I crowdsourced the problem to Facebook. I know some of you think I should have called somebody, but I don't use my phone for that. So, um, but within minutes, I had gotten a call from one person. I had gotten texts from another person and a bunch of comments on that post on Facebook from f- some other people. 
Now, it turns out that my mower is basically fine. It had just overheated in the 95-degree heat, much like its owner. But imagine with me, if you will, a completely different response. Imagine I get a call from Greg Levinson or Rob Satterberg or Jim Shea and said, Chris, you know, Christians know how to fix their mowers. In fact, if you don't know how to fix your mower, I don't think you're a Christian. I don't think you know Jesus because people who know Jesus, they fix their mowers. So a faction starts to crop up in the church. And this one group of people with Jim and and Rob and Greg, and they're all on the one side. And then on the other side, there's people like me who can't fix a mower to save their three foot of grass. Imagine if they said this. What does that do to a community? Now, obviously, there would not be a whole lot of lawns that were mowed because one side would be able to fix theirs, but the rest of us couldn't. And actually, if you go a little further down the road, there wouldn't be a lot of us here because nobody else could fix their engines. So, you know, Jim and Rob and Greg, you'd be here doing the whole service all by yourself. Now, I know that's kind of a ridiculous example, but think about it. We have so many ways that we add adjectives to qualify our faith. Some of us call ourselves charismatics, and some of us call ourselves liturgical Christians. Some of us call ourselves older Christians, and some of us call ourselves younger Christians. And I'm not entirely sure where the line is there, but I know that there's nothing in the middle. Some of us call ourselves conservative Christians. Others call ourselves liberal Christians, or progressive Christians, or I'm not really sure what the opposite of that is. Regressive? Aggressive? I don't know. Some of us are traditional music Christians, and others of us are contemporary music Christians, or hip-hop Christians, or country music Christians, or gospel-singing Christians. Some of us are premillennial, or postmillennial, or amillennial. There are Catholics, and Lutherans, and Baptists, and Presbyterians, and Methodists, and Reformed, and Congregational, and Covenant, and Evangelical, Mainline, Pentecostal, Non-Denom, Orthodox— To say nothing of the American, Swiss, Russian, German, Swedish, Ecuadorian, Iranian, Guatemalan, Israeli, Mexican, Nigerian, Indian, and Chinese Christians, just to name a few. There's so many labels that we add to the front of our faith. Now, let me back off a little bit and say, yes, the adjectives are meant to talk about how we're different, how we're unique and distinct. There is incredible beauty in the diversity of the people of God's kingdom. But the problem is what we often do with that diversity is start to think about how our particular flavor of that diversity is the best flavor. How we are better than our brothers and sisters. And so that's when we start to put the adjective in the front. We say we're American Christians, or we're conservative Christians, or progressive Christians, or covenant Christians, rather than Christians who are American, or Christians who are from the evangelical covenant church. And Paul says that this sort of thinking actually makes us slaves again. Except that in some ways it's actually worse, because we're choosing to enter back into our slavery. So, of course, when Paul hears this going on in Galatia, he got angry. This is not what we had taught the Galatian church. He taught them that they had been set free. Paul writes this, that when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For certain men came from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, circumcision wasn't actually the problem. But what was a problem was that Peter and those who were teaching this were distancing themselves from their Gentile believers, which was not in line with the gospel that they had learned. Paul says even Israel couldn't follow the law that is represented in circumcision. So why should the Gentiles be forced to follow it? In chapter 5, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, to mandate circumcision robs the gospel of grace of its power. So he gets angry at those teaching this false gospel, and he says some pretty nasty things about them. In chapter 1, he says, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted... Let them be under God's curse. Or this is my favorite one. As for those agitators, the circumcision party, I wish that they would go the whole way and castrate themselves. If you don't understand that, again, go ask Diane next week. So he gets angry at these false teachers. People who are trying to stir up dissent in the church. But he also gets angry with the Galatians themselves for falling for this false teaching that those who were circumcised were somehow better. And again, it's not the circumcision or the uncircumcision itself that matters. It's the grace of God that had set them free. So why would they voluntarily submit themselves again to slavery? Why would they allow this division between those who were circumcised and those who were uncircumcised to drive their way of thinking? See, love, says Paul, bears up under everything. Now, if you're only joining us for the first time today, we've been in the uh, book of Corinthians chapter 13 now for, um, since June, actually. We've been going one line at a time. And if you've ever been to a wedding, chances are you've heard this whole chapter read, as we heard earlier. It's called the love chapter, in that it describes the way that God loves. It says, be patient and kind. Don't envy or boast. Don't be proud or rude. Love is not self-seeking, and it's not slow to anger. And as we heard last week from Pastor Diane, love values the truth more than its own ego. Love means living like Jesus lived. Our aim has been to first to grow in our experience and our understanding of God's love for each of us. And then to increase our capacity to love. That our capacity for loving others will grow and expand and increase. Now, Pastor Chris, a number of weeks ago, defined love as living the way that Jesus lived. It's a a driving force behind a way of life. And love, which can only come from God, can handle our differences and our conflict. In fact, love helps us thrive within those times. Because where we are different, love fills the void. Paul says that we ought to live creatively that we should be agents of restoration with one another, that we should be unimpressed with ourselves, which means be humble. And we should be quick to forgive because we might end up being the ones who need the forgiveness. If we think we're too good for that kind of living, says Paul, we have been badly deceived. 
Now, the last stop on my family's travels the past couple weeks was visiting my parents and my sister in western New York. And I got to officiate my first wedding as an ordained pastor because I got to uh, marry my sister and her fiancé. And the passage I was asked to preach on was in the book of Ecclesiastes, about the cord of three strands that we heard earlier. And I was, I was preparing, I couldn't help but think that the book of Ecclesiastes is an odd place for a wedding sermon to take from. Um, this book, as you heard, is from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and the book basically has two parts to it. There's this enormous chunk in the middle, which is basically the majority of the book, um, which is a teacher who's talking about his experience in the world and what he's learned from all of that experience. And then it's bookended on either end by this father who is speaking to his child about why that huge chunk in the middle is basically wrong. The teacher over and over and over again says things like, everything is meaningless and there is nothing new under the sun. His many experiences in the world have left him worn out and jaded. And he's given himself over to despair in this sort of crisis of faith. But the father figure looks at the child and he says, this teacher is mistaken because there is far more than only that which is under the sun. There is more to the world. The world is bigger than only that which we can see and taste and touch. And in this particular passage, the teacher says that he's learned that two people are better than one. One person, he says, cannot survive on his or her own. He must have a companion of some sort along the way because if he gets into trouble, the other one can pick him up. A person alone is defenseless, but with another person, they can defend each other. If one person is alone, they can't keep warm at night, but two can. And it seems like this would be really great advice from the teacher. It's a great place to end that passage. But there's this one little other verse. Because two people on their own in a marriage are not enough. Just like the people alone of a church are not enough for that church to thrive. Now, I know that nobody likes to hear that on their wedding day. Uh, I apologize to my sister for saying that at first. Um, But people alone are not enough because there will be times when those two people are at odds with one another. And just like in a church, there are times when we will start forming factions on different sides of an issue. And the factions don't often feel like picking each other up. Do we like contemporary or do we like traditional? That is under the sun thinking. And it's the way the world works. And so the voice of the father interjects this last verse of that passage and says, sure, two is okay. It can work for a while, but a cord of three strands, that is not easily broken. Now, my dad is a structural engineer. And I've had it drilled into me my entire life that the strongest structures have three interdependent sides that hold one another up. Um, Imagine a tripod that has had its leg removed, and you can kind of see what the passage is getting at here. It can't stand up on its own. So my sister's marriage, like every wedding, began with a worship service because we were not weaving two people together. We were weaving three And if you haven't guessed, God is that third strand of the braid, the the third leg of the tripod, if you will. But unlike the others, God is the one that is constant. 
the one that never wavers and never fails, because God is the one who can bear up under the other two if and when they are at odds with one another. See, a conflict in a marriage, and actually conflict in a church, if there is none of that, that is actually unhealthy. Because there really is no such thing as no conflict in a marriage. I don't know if you were married, but can I get an amen? (laughs) There's no such thing as no conflict in a marriage. And there really is no such thing as no conflict in a church. So if you see a marriage without it, if you see a church without it, what that means is that people are pushing it down and repressing it, and eventually it will blow up in their faces. Conflict is what makes a good story because it's the healthy resolution of that conflict that grows a couple together, that grows a church together. Kind of like pulling on a braid of three strands actually pulls the three cords tighter together and it makes the whole thing stronger, more resilient, better able to handle whatever is thrown at it under the sun. The father in Ecclesiastes knows this. And so does Paul as he writes to the Galatians. So right in the first chapter of Galatians, Paul writes, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Your approval doesn't make me right, he says. It's God's approval that makes what I'm saying true. He's willing to engage the discomfort of conflict... So that in resolving that conflict, the whole church will be better, stronger, more like God's kingdom. There's a reason that Paul sandwiches the whole love bears up under everything phrase between love delights in the truth and love believes the best in all. I mean, think about the tension between those first and third statements there. Love is about the truth, but in in a conflict... Truth is what is in contention. So in a conflict, love must necessarily believe the best in all in order to bear up under flawed people instead of driving them apart so that the truth can be seen and understood. But it's not simply love for the sake of some abstract. Love bears under our conflicts for a reason. Love isn't a feeling. And it really isn't even an action. It's a source of action. Don't be fatigued by doing good, says Paul, because that is what love looks like. Love bears up under our disagreements and our conflict and keeps us together for the purpose of service. Chapter 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. So the way that you resolve this conflict is important. Paul says that love your fellow believers by serving them. Love the people who are closest to you by serving them. Serve them first, but don't stop there. There's a whole world out there that needs us now more than ever to be agents of restoration and agents of peace. Our disagreements don't make each other less loved by God. 
So even if you disagree with somebody, you can still serve them. The church in Galatia, for example, was founded when Paul got sick. Paul says that they treated him like Jesus himself. He says that they had never treated him poorly until their hearts had been turned towards this infighting and false teachers. Their fascination by what Paul basically calls trivialities of their labels turned them from generous, hospitable people into people who got angry at him for reminding them of their freedom. It's so easy to see somebody as the enemy when you hold them at the arm's length of a label. But if you're serving them, you have to be with them. You have to be close to them. You have to hear what they hear and hear what they say and see what it was that God was thinking when he made them. So they can't remain an enemy for long. God did not set us free for our own sake, but for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the way that God's ways are made present here and now. The scriptures call this the way of the cross. Our freedom is given so that we can choose to die to ourselves for the sake of others. Jesus did not consider power something to be held onto, but instead he gave it up, becoming a servant to his own creation and ended up dying on the cross at his creation's own hand in the ultimate act of love. Now, church, we know that the resurrection is the end of that story, but we cannot be resurrected as God's new creations unless we are willing to die first. We must die to ourselves first. Which means your freedom has led you to a choice. May you all be like Christ in your patience and in your kindness in your generosity and in your humility, in your selflessness and in the way you treat others with honor and dignity and generosity, even as you disagree with them. Care for one another in those inevitable disagreements and in the inevitable abundance that flows from that, we care for the world together.